there's not one way to do it. So I really welcome the diversity. In, there are some vegan foods that just don't get me hot under the collar, but I think it's wonderful that for those people who do eat that way and are used to eating that way, there's something for each and every one of us. Today on Dirty Linen, we are chatting to somebody who I reckon makes me smile and feel good every single day. His name is Zachary Bird. He is a vegan chef. I don't know if if I'm allowed to call you a vegan influencer, Zach. You're the author of The Vegan Butcher, which won Peter's best cookbook of 2021. Um, And you are a bloody good dancer. Welcome, Zach, to Dirty Linen. What an intro. Thanks so much for having me, Danny. (laughs) When people ask you who you are and what you do, what do you say? Oh, that's evolved so often and and so frequently in the last few years. But at the moment, I'd call myself probably a recipe developer above all. Just seemed it seems as though that sort of fits everything into one into one little phrase. I think. Yeah, absolutely. So, and tell us about your presence on social media and you know some of the things that you get up to. Well, at the moment, I'm probably on every available platform that you can find on the internet, and I'm just uh, aggressively putting my content out wherever people will see it. But yeah, I, I just love to share my passion for food and and uh, dance and humour and all those little ways that I can get um, my humour and my passion for vegan food in front of people is really what I'm doing. So that takes a lot of different forms, depending on what the day is and what I'm in the mood for. <laughs> yeah. So what kinds of things are you, I guess, feeling and putting out there, you know, at the moment, like what springs to mind? Because for me, it's just like, there's always, there's, you just find different angles in how to speak about vegan food or being vegan. Um, I find it like, I'm not a vegan, but you know, there's so much vegan food that I love. Um, but it's like, for me, it's really thought provoking. It's really inclusive. Um, but it doesn't hold back either. Um, yeah. Like how would you characterize your, I suppose, your attitude to food comms and veganism? Oh, absolutely. So I would call it above all unapologetic. And I, I think that comes from when I first got into social media and food and looking at the vegan space. I, In my perspective, it was looking quite homogenous and everyone was sort of saying quite similar things. And it was that sort of health conscious conversation about like, here's how to make a bliss ball or a smoothie bowl. And none of that really spoke to me and who I am. So uh, my voice has definitely evolved over the years. But at the moment, I'd say the consistent thing is that I'm just unapologetic apologetic about how I feel and how I like to share it. And it, it turns out that people really respond to that. So I'm, I'm stoked as can be about that. Mm. Well, tell us about you and being vegan. Um, yeah. What happened? How did it start? What, what's your vibe? So I've been a vegetarian since I was a wee child, uh, probably an early teenager, actually. And I went vegan when I was 21 and I didn't really have any passion for food. So that that switch to veganism is what sort of sparked my whole career in food, just because the vegan food scene was not nearly as sexy back then as it is today. And I was really galvanized to sort of be a part of that change and, and see what I could offer to the movement to make it evolve. So when I went vegan, maybe, uh, eight or nine years ago, uh, there was no plant-based meat section in the supermarket. There was no vegan cheese on the shelf. Uh, so, that's really what brought me into it really just out of necessity I would say at the time. Mm. And what's the process of turning that into a career? 
Well, I started off uh, really just as a hobby. I really wanted to just engage with more people in food because I'd got this newfound passion for food because as a young vegetarian, I was just happy with some, you know, Coles Tasty cheese on a pizza and I would have that seven days a week and I and I was absolutely stoked with it. Um, and then um, uh, from there, I just sort of I had to dabble in um, as I was experimenting with things. People started really engaging with the fact that I wasn't talking about smoothie bowls. And uh, my first recipe that put me on the map was something called CFC drumsticks, which was a version of a KFC drumstick made out of uh, jackfruit as the chicken flesh. And I used a cauliflower to make a bone. And so it looked really realistic and it was really a big attempt to one for one replicate a dish that. I grew up eating and was my Friday night special dish. And the response that I got to that was what um, really said to me that there could be a creed to be made in this because people were really uh, excited by it. And I and I thought, okay, well, here's my voice and here's what I can contribute to our little uh, community of vegan food creators. Mm. Yeah, really great. Um, and then what about The Vegan Butcher, your award-winning cookbook? How did that come about? So my first published cookbook uh, was Vegan Junk Food, which came out in 2020. And uh, that was sort of taking that KFC drumstick idea and creating a whole book about it. So when I got asked to do a second cookbook, I thought, let's go gung-ho on the other side of that KFC recipe, which was replicating meat. Because when that recipe went viral, there was a lot of – it was very popular, as I said, but it was also very controversial because people just, as they still don't seem to understand, didn't know why I would be replicating a dish that was so at odds with um, my lifestyle and obviously what I was putting out into the world. So The Vegan Butcher was my my um, my massive tome where I could write as much as I could and justify and tell people why I worked in that space. And I really wanted to go through all of the different animal products that aren't on the vegan menu and just uh, one by one create a vegan alternative so there would be some sort of massive resource for people who wanted to create food that they're used to eating uh, but with a vegan twist. Mm. So what's one of the recipes in there that you're really proud of? Oh, I love my um, – oh, oh, it's making me pick my favourite child. You can, you can <laughs> say more than one. <laughs> That's okay. I really like my seitan steaks because they are fiercely meaty and they uh, do a wonderful job at showcasing seitan, which is um, – a really integral part of the vegan faux meat arsenal and it's this wonderful ingredient um, that comes from Asia and it's uh, it's just pure gluten protein and uh, it's a wonderful source of protein but there's a method where you can literally wash a ball of dough and uh, remove all the starches so that you're just left with this uh, protein and you can shape that into these wonderful meat alternatives. So I think my steak does a really good job of um, showing people how to get started with that very alien concept and create something that is a real showstopper to serve up on the dinner table. Mm, So good. What are some of the things that frustrate you around conversations about veganism? Look, I would say that it is... I wouldn't call myself frustrated because I've been having the same conversation for seven years. And I will say that the vegan food scene and uh, what we've got available has evolved dramatically. But I think the public perception still has a long way to go. So despite the fact that we've now got a dedicated plant-based meat section in the meat part of 
pretty much all supermarkets, there is still this confusion as to, oh, why would a vegan want that? And and I think it's the, the frustration comes from having to continually explain, you know, that we want a protein source and that food is traditional and it's our culture that we grew up eating. And so we are going to miss those dishes uh, that uh, – apparently off the menu for vegans and so i think it makes perfect sense that we would be creating alternatives that are familiar and uh very uh similar to the way that we're used to eating which is in australia that sort of meat with some vegetables or a grain on the side and so it is creating an option for people to um, stay within their comfort zone while stepping out of the box um and so i think re-explaining that over and over can get a little frustrating but i i guess that's where my humorous twist has come from because after seven years I think it's hilarious like I've got so many little cheeky clapbacks that uh really like condense that whole back and forth into uh a succinct way of saying of course I'd want to eat this this is exciting for vegans and it should be as much a part of our um food landscape as as a bowl of vegetables on the side Mm. It's really interesting thinking about, you know, as vegan eating becomes more and more popular or mainstream or however you want to think about it, you know, perhaps that transition from meat and three veg to veganism will change. You know, I guess as people grow up eating more vegan food, um, it'll be interesting to see if that shifts, you know, that that, you know, protein plus veg plus grain or whatever on a plate doesn't need to be there as that sort of transition zone anymore? Oh, 100 percent. That's a really great point and something that I'm super excited for. Uh, but I think the exciting thing is that or the exciting perspective shift is that people saw vegan food as, you know, a block of tofu and some steamed broccoli. And now we're seeing more diverse voices in the scene, which is why I love pushing my junk food and pushing my uh, giant roast turkeys uh, just to show that you can you can eat vegan in such a plethora of ways. And so if your neighbour is eating something vegan that doesn't really appeal to you, there's not one way to do it. So I really welcome the diversity of there are some vegan foods that just don't get me hot under the collar. But I think it's wonderful that for those people who do eat that way and are used to eating that way, there's something for each and every one of us. Mm. And I guess, you know, there's so many uh, vegan dishes in so many different cultures around the world. Like it's, um, yeah, there's some food that's was always vegan, right? Oh, 100%. And, uh yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, if you go into Italian food, there's so many classic cheese-free dishes that don't have meat. And Greek food has beautiful, um, you know, if you eat anywhere that has antipasto or meze, um, there's there's some things that are vegan on it. So we're really used to having some vegan things in our diet in terms of um, no matter what culture you come from. And now it's kind of showcasing that you can have all of these different things and you don't need to stick to this one little rule that you might have uh, grown up thinking is the way that we must eat to eat healthily or to be full and um, sustained by your food. Mm, Yeah. So just to switch gears a bit, Zach, you recently um, opened up about your uh, struggles with your hearing and getting a hearing aid funded by um, the government. Can you talk about, you know, that that side of um, your life and, you know, where it's where it's taken you? A hundred percent. So I've been partially or I've been um, hearing impaired since birth. And so I've worn hearing aids since the age of six. And in Australia, you are given support 
up to the age of 26, where the government um, gives you resources and helps you get hearing aid. And then there is that hard uh, line in the sand, that sort of cliff, if you will, when you turn 26, that you get pushed off that cliff and all of a sudden you're sort of sailing through the air. And um, that's sort of where I'm at, where I've started to come to terms with and understand what that looks like. And uh, as I wrote recently, there, it is a massive financial liability for a lot of people on my boat where, yes, I can hear and, and thrive, but only if I have quite a substantial amount of money to throw at hearing aids when I need them and if they break down and there's no real resource to fall back on. And so speaking about that publicly has been incredible because I didn't realise how many other people are in a similar position, um, but also seeing how people like me are adapting in because this this is something that's affected my career, it's affected my day-to-day -day life, and um, it's really interesting to see how each and every one of us are uh, pull, pulling it out and making it work in our um, individual lots, I guess. How much can hearing aids cost? Uh, well, I can tell you directly my last quote was eight and a half grand for um, a pair of hearing aids, which I don't think um, I don't think I need to explain it. That's a massive uh lot of money to just pull out to not to uh, better yourself or to um, have anything particularly exciting, but for eight and a half grand just to be operating at the bare minimum that a lot of other people, uh, I guess, take for granted, as is the case with every sort of invisible or visible disability. Uh, it is quite a significant um, liability. That's it's an enormous amount of money, and of course, an, a, 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 an amount that most people just wouldn't have sitting around just, you know. Um, yeah, wondering what to do with it's 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 yeah it's ridiculous and in such a wealthy country as Australia that there's this line beyond which apparently your hearing you know is is your own problem and before that the community was assisting you in you know partaking in society in whichever way you wanted. A hundred percent, and it, it just gives me a lot of empathy for people who don't. I mean, we live in a place with universal healthcare, and that's still a problem and a gap within that service that exists. So it's, uh, it gives me a lot of empathy for people who don't even have that bare minimum, because I do appreciate how lucky I was up to the age of 26 to have these resources. And I guess it's something I took for granted, and it's something that's why I'm speaking about it now, because it's not something I've re really had to deal with up until this point in my life. And so working in food, Zach, you know, how has your hearing impairment made a difference? Like, would you say it's it's changed the path that you've um, set yourself on? Completely. I. It's always in the back of your mind, especially when you think of that eight and a half grand and you think, I don't want to be making decisions that put me in a position where I might break or injure, um, not injure, if I might break my hearing aid. So uh, putting yourself in a hot environment, for example, like uh, a kitchen or being on the line is just you're at constant risk of sweating and, and ruining hearing aids because they aren't waterproof. And so there's sort of active uh, jobs, which cooking is, as well as in a particularly hot environment like a kitchen is somewhere that's really at odds with what I'm trying to, where I'm trying to put myself to protect my hearing. And uh, when you don't have uh, a rely, if you can't rely on that sense as much as others, then being in a kitchen environment can be really quite scary because if someone's shouting an order change or if someone's, you know, it's a very verbal space to be, I, I, you get worried that you won't hear the behind when someone walks behind you. So I have definitely, in my career, I have 
um, been a chef for a little while now, but I've uh, been more on the recipe development uh, for commercial brands. I've taught my own classes and I've been writing my own cookbooks. And you can sort of see after the fact that I've made very specific decisions to cook but in environments that I have absolute control and I don't need to rely on my ability to hear someone else talking to me and I don't need to rely on being in a kitchen that gets too hot and too flustered where if my hearing aids turn off I'm suddenly a big rock in the middle of a line instead of actually someone who can help out. That's so interesting because I I think some people might imagine that okay you're hearing impaired but you've got a hearing aid and therefore you're just basically on the same level as everybody else. But can you describe for us, you know, perhaps why that's not the case? Like what is it like to hear with a hearing aid? I don't think I'll ever know what people without hearing aids hear like because, uh, you know, this is obviously a digitised version of the world that's entering my ears. But hearing aids also, they've come a long way and they've got to these rad little programs. So they'll focus on um, diminishing background noise or they'll try and focus on human speech which is great if you're sitting in a quiet room chatting with someone. But when you're in a place when there's multiple voices going um, on, your hearing aid is going to pick who it focuses on and it might not be the right person. And there's only so many times you can say pardon when, you know, something's frying in the corner and they're telling you to to get it off the stove or something like that. Um, So it definitely impacts, like I might be able to hear people technically but I don't get to choose what my hearing aids prioritise. And in a kitchen where I need to prioritise personally what I'm hearing, then that's no good for me. Yeah, right. And have you been in situations where that's been the case and it's just been like, uh, it's just made you really upset? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I obviously got my start in, in a variety of kitchens and I definitely worked in those spaces, um, especially somewhere like hot, like a little food truck where it's it's already the hottest environment on the planet. And I'm already, you know, I've got a little sweatband on and people think it's a, a, a gorgeous little fashion choice. But really, I'm just praying that it stops the sweat from dripping into my hearing aids. Um, and in those environments, I definitely can feel that pressure of I've missed this person saying something to me the second time. I'm so embarrassed to ask the third time because now I'm I'm the problem in here. And so you either don't want to ask again and you make an assumption and hope that it's right and then you make a big mistake and that's even worse. Um, or you get it right, which is great, but it's that constant anxiety I don't think that gets talked about uh, where I'm trying to obviously perform at the level I'm expected to, but in the back of my mind, I'm always considering what have I missed? Am I being a liability to these people? And am I about to just break these hearing aids and have to fork out my life savings just to be able to re-enter this kitchen again tomorrow morning? Wow, it's a lot. I mean, it seems really unfortunate and unfair that people with hearing impairments aren't able to, well, perhaps can't speak for everyone but it can there can be challenges in performing to yeah to a, a desired level in a professional kitchen can you think of anything structural that could change in the hospitality industry that would um, make it more welcoming for people with hearing impairments? I don't think off the bat that I would know anything just because kitchens are these wonderfully designed environments to work efficiently and so it doesn't really serve the environment to start creating these um sort of um what's the word uh allowances i guess people tend to do what i do where you find where you work so i might find myself on the past or i might find myself 
um, specifically choosing a role in a kitchen where I don't need to rely on really quick communication uh, or where I'm the one communicating and I have full control over that. But I, I mean, and I can only speak for myself, there is a little blessing in how this has forced me to map out a solo career because having these cookbooks and being able to create a, a, a sort of brand around my own food and self is really born from creating a job for myself where I don't rely on that. And I don't know if I would have had such lofty ambitions if I didn't environmentally need to force myself to find those sort of jobs. Mm, yeah, I mean, that's so interesting, isn't it? There's always there's always swings and roundabouts with these things. but um... Absolutely, and that's just specific to me. I mean, that might be a lucky one in a million case. So not to say that every person who's deaf who loves food is about to get 10 cookbook deals as an apology from the world. Um, <laughs> it's not going to work that way. <laughs> Zach, switching gears again, let, one of the um, things that you discussed recently that I thought was just, yeah, really unapologetic, as you say you are, was the whole Oatly um, badge thing. Can you explain what, the, what you saw out there in the world and your response to it? Oh, absolutely. So what brought me into food in the first place is the fact that I'm a vegan and I am um, an ethical vegan. And so I speak from that perspective pretty much, well, no, all the time. And so Oatly has been... Oatly in the past has had a wonderful um, advertising platform and they've used really well. So there's a really iconic campaign. Uh, you might have seen the billboards around. It said it's like milk but for humans. And I thought it was such a wonderful way to stay true to the vegan messaging but put it into this format that everyone can sort of understand not feel sort of torn down by but also imparts a bit of our perspective which is what I'm trying to get at and so recently um Oatly completely dialed back that vibe and uh did this what I I, I think they thought was a, a very light-hearted and cute post and they put all these uh uh badges on a on a on a denim jacket but uh, so many of them really uh were at odds with what veganism is, but they chose to use the word vegan, which is where I took issue. So they had things like, uh, oh, I'm an activist-ish, or justice for the planet from 8 to 9 a.m., or uh, part-time vegan for life. And that's not to say that we shouldn't be bringing people into the flexitarian movement and encouraging people to make better choices where they can. But when you use the word vegan, which is a which is an overarching lifestyle that says I, I've chosen to not use animal products where I can possibly do so. It really uh, muddies our message for other people. And so there's a reason the word plant-based exists and it's to describe those sort of food and food choices disparate from veganism as a social movement. And so when you muddy that up and you're doing that as a very uh, public vegan friendly brand that has spoken on it um, in the past, then that's, that's why I sort of um, drew attention to it on my own social media platforms and said, this is a bit of a miss guys. Like you, you can, you can put this message out without then sort of, um, putting down vegans who I guess have really felt excited that this brand represents us in, in this commercial space. And it was a bit heartbreaking to see us sort of trod on uh, in a way that didn't really serve anyone. I don't think it served Oatly's branding. I don't think it invited people in to try oat milk who weren't already interested. And a lot of vegans just said, oh, well, now I'm going to have to re-explain to people that it's I'm not vegan from 8 to 9 a.m. because that's that's a bit of a joke. Like it's really making light of something that's quite serious to a lot of people. Yeah, it's 
That's really interesting. Why would they have gone for the snark like that? Well, and I'm I'm all for snark. If you follow my social media, I I live <laughs> live for a clap back. But they really doubled down on their message over and over, and it really just showed a misunderstanding from a marketing perspective, where they they um. Yeah, I don't think they I don't think they did themselves a lot of justice there and and I've built myself a platform so that I can speak up and out about things in this space and so um it was interesting to see how many people were also like this is this is a, a real miss team. I would um get back on the horse. No, sorry, that's the least vegan phrase I could have said, but <laughs> uh, but um <laughs> you know, they they did come from a really good place originally and so I guess there was that sort of um, perspective of, oh, come on, Oatly, like, you know better than this. You've proven that you've got the right idea. You just need your marketing intern to maybe read a one-page document on the word vegan and how not to bastardize it for profit. Yeah, interesting. Um, yeah, did they respond to you at all? You know, they actually, I, I woke up yesterday and Oatly had liked, um, I was wearing a, a, a soy boy shirt and I said I was protesting the Oatly intern and Oatly liked that. So I don't know if that <laughs> was a bit of sadomachism, but they definitely saw what I was doing and they did issue uh, an apology. Not that it needed an apology, it just needed a sort of um, a 180 turn on the steering wheel. But I think they sort of missed the mark that the vegans were saying, well, no, please keep representing us in a in a in a fair way that um, does justice to the fact that you are a beautiful part of uh, the vegan movement becoming more accessible and, and kind of spreading why people would care about choosing oat milk over cow milk. So I think that their apology was sort of trying to dial it back a bit, but I'm still waiting for them to, to understand that they could really have it all. And we're all here to bring people into these more ethical or environmentally friendly choices. Just, just don't be mean to your supporters while you do it. Yeah, hundred percent. Um, so Zach, where to next? What's, what are you planning? Who's to say, I mean, my career has evolved so dramatically since this pandemic hit. So prior to uh, our friend uh, COVID hitting, I was working in commercial plant-based meat development. And so I moved very rapidly into this book writing and promotion that I've done for two years and dancing and, and making jokes, which is not something I ever did for the first five or six years of my social media life. And so now I guess as we, not that the pandemic's over and the hospitality industry is still being absolutely um destroyed from what I can see from all of these rolling silent lockdown. It is interesting for me to then still find a new space where with my hearing, with the fact that I'm a very vocal vegan chef who only really works in those vegan spaces, I guess I'm, I'm, uh, I can't quite comment, but I'm excited because when I first became a vegan chef, I never fathomed that I could work on products for Woolworths or that I could have a cookbook in the hands of, of Jacinda Ardern or all of these wonderful things. And so I guess I'm, um, I'm not committing too, too heavily on anything just because going with the flow on this is, has really led me to uh, wonderful heights I couldn't have imagined. Oh, it's so great. What a great tale. Where do you reckon plant-based meats are going? You know, do you think that they're going to branch out from being enjoyed by vegans? Do you think, yeah, where do you, where do you think? 
Oh, I could talk for hours on this one. I, uh, when I was working for in plant-based meat development, as a, as a vegan, I was so excited to produce product for other vegans and things that I would hope to find in the store. And I would constantly be dialed back and said, no, Zach, vegans are, are not even the 5% of our market because, you know, that vegan is, vegans are such a small subsection of uh, a very large community. And so people who are trying Meatless Mondays, people who are just wanting to um, – you know, try one meal there are still such a big segment of that market. So I think that um, there's a lot of hope for how big this little segment of the market can grow. And we're at the spot where uh, some meat brands are really, sorry, faux meat brands are really replicating on uh, flavor. Some have really hit that nutrition, uh, matching the protein and the carbs and the fat that you would hope to find in a little slab of meat and so i think the next thing is as this becomes more normalized the price of plant-based meat as a whole will be coming down and will start competing directly with meat where you go oh it's actually probably cheaper and easier for me not to choose meat tonight and so i think that we will continue to just compete on those facets being flavor price and nutrition to a point that it is normalized where it would be hard to justify having meat when you've got such an array that offers you all that you're looking for and that doesn't even speak to the fact that we've got lab grown meat on the way we've got 3d printed meat i mean really any sort of mechanism you want to make a fake piece of meat people are working on right now so i don't think we've seen uh the heights that plant-based meat are going to reach I don't think we've even seen a small percentage of where we're going to get to. Yeah, I'm sure you're right. And lab-grown meat is so interesting. Like, w- would you be all about that or not really your vibe? Personally, no, but that's not to say that, as I said, I love the diversity of the movement, that that, that is for someone. And uh, I think if we talk about the comments that you get, uh, I get a lot of, you know, not so great comments from non-vegan, but there's also so many vegans like, oh, I wouldn't eat that. And my response to that is shut up <laughs> because you don't have to. And so I, I I personally, it doesn't appeal to me. And I've been a vegetarian since I was a teenager. So meat is not something that I, I really miss overly because it wasn't a part of a big part of my growing up but for so many it was and so lab grown meat is really going to be I think a big game changer for those people who are really can't let go um, who want something that is essentially a cow without being a cow in every single way and if we need to produce that to get people over the line people are working on that and I I for one can't wait to see it that is different from not being able to wait to put it in my mouth personally. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I totally get that. Um, Zach, I've just loved learning more about you um, and just feeling your enthusiasm. Is there anything else that you'd like to chat about? Um, Oh, not off the top of my head. I'm uh, currently moved into my parents for a little bit and I'm actually really loving having a brand new set of mouths to feed and they've got a very different palate to mind as meat eaters and people who um, sort of, I guess, are the average Aussie um, Aussie demographic that I'm looking to cater to. So I'm really having a lot of fun. I'm doing a series on my uh, social media at the moment, which is making my dad's school lunches because he's a school principal. And so the tables have turned. And at the moment, I'm make, I'm preparing his meals uh, for school. And I'm just really enjoying having these different palettes to cook for and um, sharing that with the world. So I, um, yeah, I can't wait to share more of that and, and see where that takes me. What's a, What's been a school lunch winner? 
oh, fried rice. My parents go off for a good fried rice with, uh, uh, well, because it gets it. They love the tofu. Uh, Tofu's got such a, not a public image issue uh, because it, it, it's, People love tofu in an Asian restaurant when it's pre- prepared in these traditional ways and it's a side dish. But I think um, my fried rice with uh, my secret is a bit of uh, apricot jam in the marinade on the tofu. It gets everyone saying, oh, oh, yes, you've got to have soy sauce, garlic, ginger, apricot jam, tomato sauce, bit of hot sauce. And everyone sings tofu's praises after they try that. So I would say that's the biggest winner so far. I'm definitely going to try that. You've got me really thinking now. I'm just like, oh, I've got some kumquat marmalade. How would that be with the tofu? Oh, oh, okay. Report back on that one, mate. Yep, I will. (laughs) Um, Zach, thank you so much for taking the time to have a chat to us today. It's just awesome to have you on the show. Um, Thanks for sharing your tale with Dirty Linen. It's been a delicious treat. Thank you for having me, Danny. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This.